I'm going to speak today about a famous American poet, Jory Graham, who I heard read sometime in Iowa City, probably in the mid-80s, and who I've been reading off and on for 40 years, I guess, since I think she began writing in the 70s. But It's been a long time since I started reading her poems. I first must say something interesting about the problem of poetry. I think that I never understood the implications of Jory Graham's poems until this year, 2018. That is, 24 years after her selected poems are put together, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize, and which includes, includes a lot of her most well-known and widely read poems. Now, we live in an age of poetic decline, uh, and the professional poetry culture of the workshop, we can use that as a shorthand name for it, is not competing well with the poetry cultures that preceded it in the first half of the 20th century and earlier. But it does produce a number of extremely talented, able, original voices. And it does produce a handful of major poets out of a vast industry of academic and semi-academic poetry. It produces, a, it produces a certain body. And if I read best poems of 2011, I do find in a volume of that kind a handful of poems that I can admire and, and, and feel moved by, or that I at least admire. I at least admire their, their verbal ingenuity and their, their skillful use of poetic language and uh, manipulation of ideas. Now, I did not understand Jory Graham for many, many years. I would read her at night before I went to bed, I'd, like I do a lot of a very large number of contemporary poets. I tend to read, but not often reread poets of, of that period after 1975 or 80, because I still spent a great time reading poetry it written in English between the end of the Middle English period and Auden, let's say, which is a long period. It, would, it, would, it takes many years to cover gaps and fill. But I have decided as a principle that I would read poetry written later so that I have a sense of the poetic situation. And among the poets I read, among the American poets, and among the poets of the English language, Jory Graham always struck me as one with a very vital linguistic turn or power and a kind of a almost original rhythm, although it's been imitated, and it itself is somewhat imitative of the long lines of other poets. I won't go through the genealogy now. But I thought that she was a skillful and very thoughtful uh, manipulator of this long poetic line which goes back to Whitman, but which has now become much more subtle and brittle and, and ornate and, and dense, and uh, which I will not analyze in great detail except to say that I admire some of the verbal and sonic effects that she creates in the poem, and also her deliberation a thing which I 
have often claimed, as you know, to be a central uh, element in good poetry. Deliberate, consistent consideration of, of an idea or of creation of a certain world or a certain fabric or it could be a certain narrative sense that produces in the poet a unique and particular voice or achievement. And this has been true of Jory Graham through all the years that I've read her and through all her permutations and, and uh, changes. She is, in one sense, even more than Charles Wright, who I, would, I could compare with her, although they have very different ideologies, uh, even more than Ammons, for example. She has written one continuous poem, and it has made the same statement in many, many ways and in many forms. And this I admire because the tenacity and the deliberation involved in this shows a mind singularly involved with the subjects of her, of her own life meditation. But now I will say the, the negative side of this, of this situation, which is that I realize now much more clearly what I believe Jory Graham means or if it isn't what she means, what she's actually saying. Because there is such a thing as what one says that can be analyzed by any reader who is capable of reading the words in the language on the page. And I, have not, I am not an adept in the criticism of Jory Graham. I, do, I know what people say superficially in blurbs, but blurbs never have intellectual weight or significance. They're usually either empty praise or, or space fillers. So let me say some things about Graham's particular imaginative universe. Now, she begins The Visible World, one of her famous poems, I dig my hands into the absolute. The surface breaks into shingled grass clusters, lifts. If I press, pick in with fingers, pluck, I can unfold the loam. It is tender. It is a tender maneuver. Hands making and unmaking promises. Diggers. Forgetters. A series of successive single instances. Frames of reference moving. This, these introductory lines of the visible world are a perfect representation of the Graham cosmos and a perfect representation that introduces us to some of her anxieties about the human mind's ability to know, to conjure, to name, to organize. And not only its ability to do so, but the dangers of the human mind going beyond the visible chaos, which is introduced by what the Greeks called isthesis, simple sensation, simple simple visual particularities because Graham, whether she knows it or not, might be the most extreme uh, Barclayan or Lockean that ever walked the face of the earth because she really believes that an efficacious understanding of the world taken as world is gotten from an unconsidered breaking down of the surface of single individual images not even objects in the Williams sense of objectivism, but single images, impressions, and the forces and vectors and movements that keep these things unstable, 
and, un, and in a sense, as she says in numerous poems, unknowable and protected in their glorious existence, apparently, by their unknowableness. So in this passage we have, I dig my hands into the absolute. It doesn't mean that she's a Platonist digging her hands into the form of things or a Christian digging her hands into the created essence. It doesn't mean she's digging into the, 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 the uh, material fabric which combines with some intelligible form to produce substances. Or No, it means that this handful of shingled grass clusters picked in with fingers, this loam, this tender, dividable substance is the absolute. The chaos of these visual particulars as she touches them and her touching of them seems to me here, and I, I know this from a dozen other poems, it seems to me a tender maneuver because it starts making promises once we start analyzing what we have dug up, we diggers, we human thinkers, we dig up and we look and we analyze and we suddenly remove that naked mystery and that, and that amazing innocence and that, that kind of lighted uh, primitive goodness that somehow the unknowable, chaotic totality of the world grants us, if we're willing to see it as in, in a kind of impermanent, glancing, unconsidering way. And this corresponds in her world to her understanding of the way we, we should or we do, I'm not sure whether it's we should or we do, experience time and life. Because it seems that the purest experience of life, even among people, even in a social sense, is perceiving them as part of a moving body of ever-changing images and the movement of light and force and motion without any history, drama, narrative, which makes them conform to the idea of their potential nature as a substance, as something separable with a unity, with a purpose. In fact, there's never been a poet that I have ever read who was more passionately opposed to teleology, to the, th- the idea that anything has an end. In fact, any, once we posit an end, uh, we have destroyed, it seems, the intimacy and the, and the pregnancy of life. It is the horror, Graham says, destination, pulling the whole long song down like a bad toss let go in order to start again right. And it is wrong to let its one inaudible note govern our going, isn't it? How do I interpret these words? Well, in light of so many other passages, destination is purpose or telos in the traditional sense. The way things are going, the thing they fulfill or that proves their nature by its fulfillment, like the way an acorn becomes an oak tree or the way a baby becomes a citizen. These things are a horror and they destroy our sense of the ineffable particular of any existing thing in any moment of his existence. And it's all those moments added together without any imposition of form that to, it seems to me that Jory Graham is praising. It's praising. Well, um, what else can I read to give you the sense of this which so deeply bothers me? And it comes close to horrifying me as a concept of the world in which we live. The nature of goodness the mind exhales. 
It blows out the nature of goodness, put in, put in italics to show it's not the straight print of what we actually know and can understand. I see myself, I am a widening angle of, and nevertheless, and this performance has rapidly nailing each point and then each next right point, interlocking, correct, correct again, each rightness snapping loose, floating, hook in the air, swirling, seed down, quick, the evidence of the visual henceforth and henceforth loosening. Here again, we have a world in which I see myself, if at all, in the impermanent performance of my own sounds and in the nailing of each point along a vector without connection. Correct A, correct again B, each rightness snapping loose, independent in other words, floating, hook in the air, swirling, seed down, quick. Throughout her whole work, there's a word she uses to describe the, the, the essential nature of the movement of things, because she's an extreme Heraclitian. And, you know, Heraclitus, you can't step into the same river twice. In other words, our world is not a f- set of fixities, but, but defined by some kind of an in- uninterpretable motion, at least on one side of the Heraclitian formula. When she wants to make you feel that, she'll say, whir, W-H-I-R, whir. You know, that we're in the middle of this flowing, unstopable uh, uh, set of visual and physical objects which play a kind of gameless game or pointless ordering. Well, sometimes this becomes a form of solipsism because we each perceive the accidental uh, reflections of the day ourselves and that each of those is a unique perceptive act of empiricism, as it were. What do you do want you, listening here with me now, inside the monologue? What will you insert? What word? What marks upon the pleading blackness of hotel air? What? To open it? To make it hear you? To make it hear me? How heavy can the singleness become? Who will hear us? What shall we do? I have waited all this time in the sooty minutes. Green, gleaming bouquet offering and offering itself right to my unrelenting open eyes. Long black arm tendering its icy blossoms up to me. Right through the blizzard of instances, the blurry blacknesses, the whole room choked with a thousand spots. My glance has struck. Long ago, long ago, and then, secondhand, this place which is now, were, immortal, free, glances like flames licking the walls, oh blackness, I am your servant. I take for mine your green exactness in which you say yourself, in which you say only yourself. Now, this is my favorite passage and Jory Graham by way of being her most perfect representation of her basic ideas, and therefore also my least favorite because it clarifies what she's thinking. So the you that's italicized is an imaginary being, 
a perceptive being, as changeable and movable, apparently, as the thing she perceives. Far beyond the skepticism of the self, even in Locke. Listening here and with me now, inside the monologue, what, would you, what could you insert into this monologue of natural images? This one voice of, of this spectacle of particularities. What mark upon the pleading blacknesses of the hotel air? What could you add to the darkness in the air of the hotel? And the answer is nothing. What would be the point she has to do it? To open it? To make it hear you? The human being? The agent of intelligence? Why should the hotel and the, and the natural world and the physical world be interested in a thing like you? You mere intellectual being. You, you mere receptivity. What shall we do? I have waited all the time in the sooty minutes. Here's what she's waited for. Green, gleaming bouquet, offering and offering itself. This is the world of natural images, the world of, unpartic- of particular and specific uh, movements of light and, and body. Right in my unrelenting open eyes. Long black arm tendering its icy blossoms up to me. Right through the blizzard of instances. It's like a snowstorm of instances. By the way, without pattern, without history, without narrative. The blurry blacknesses, the whole room choked with the thousand spots my glance has struck long ago, long ago, and then, secondhand, this place which is now, were. And she asked the question, is it immortal? No. Is it free? No. Glances like flames licking the walls, O oh blackness. I am your servant. I serve those glances into the into the chaotic particularity of light and darkness. I'm like, like a flame licking the walls of blackness. I am the servant of these accidents. I take for mine your green exactest in which you say yourself. You, you the world, says, here I am. And then you repeat, here I am. In which you say, only yourself. No meaning other than the drastic chaos of particulars. And I am the servant of this passivity of knowledge. It's good enough for me. Well, why, do I, why, do I, why have I brought up Jory Graham? Well, Jory Graham is the sine qua non, the, 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 the ne plus ultra of the poet who no longer believes in the possibility of essence. History is overtelling a story. Narration is a, is a start and an end which are arbitrary. Formal theories about essence, substance, the relation of what's a, a fundamental to what's accidental, all that kind of discourse is a, is a laborious human interposition, an invasion into the reality. And it destroys the, the insouciance and the beauty of life. So all the intellectual wherewithal, which has been given us to abstract, to define, to name, to organize, to understand are all deadly, erroneous powers which we must, we must cast out even when it comes to describing and understanding and remembering our relation to other human beings, which gives me a grip of horror when I think about it. Well, this was made possible, no doubt, by her growing up in the world of Derridean deconstruction and extreme post-Heideggerian skepticism and... Uh, 
One understands it as part of an ethos, but she is the mistress, the master, the, 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 the great and powerful voice of this idea in its most extreme form. And I don't wish to be neutral about it. I think this, po- this poetry and the workshop poetry derived from it or with it is among the most distressing, anti-human, anti-intellectual thing that has ever been created. And for this reason, I, I think that one should remember that poetry says something. And what it says, one has to be able to judge. The criticos, the judgment, is the, is the critical moment. And I have said today what I feel about these, these poems, and I could name so many other poets in this genus, the genus of vacuous, accidental experience as the ground for knowing, feeling, understanding.